0: Today's guest is Robert Kopecki. He is an award-winning Manhattan illustrator, art director, and animation designer for clients like New York Times, Cartoon Network, and PBS Kids. He has had three near-death experiences that led him to years of study, meditation, and service. He was a 2016 International Association for Near-Death Studies featured speaker, and he is the author of two books. How to Get to Heaven Without Dying and How to Survive Life and Death. Robert, thank you so much for giving me time today. I really appreciate you.
2: Yeah, it's my pleasure, Jeff. It's nice to be here. It's How to Get to Heaven Without Really Dying. Oh, okay. That's the name of that book.
0: I actually, yeah. honestly, I didn't have the second part there, but I remembered it earlier doing stuff and I then I tried to wing it.
2: Yeah. It's a play on a Broadway show title, kind of. You oh, know? really? how to succeed without really trying. It's how to get to heaven without really dying. And that's the important part is the not really dying part of it,
1: you know, Uh,
2: because that's kind of my, that's where my story differs from a lot of people's. I think Mm -hmm. is that, um, having had the three occasions, the three different things happen to me. Mm -hmm. Um, heaven is not a place in my experience. Interesting. It's a state of being,
1: Hmm.
2: it's a state of being. And, and, uh, the place that we experience in the quote-unquote afterlife, to, in, in my experience, is the result of basically what our karma is at the time. You know, <clears throat> in, the same, in the same ways that we're creating our life in this world, um, our life is also created in a similar way in whatever world we're occupying.
0: Since you said heaven is a state of being and when you're out of your body and into this other dimension or wherever you are um your state of being obviously has changed physically but i guess somehow from what other people report their state of personality or their state of who they are changes like all their worries all their problems all their whatever automatically disappears for them. They don't even have to try. It just automatically goes away, and they're in peace. Would you agree with that?
2: Right. Yeah, yeah. And, and um, I go further uh, the, to kind of quantify what happens, because now I've heard a whole bunch of people's stories and stuff.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, in 2014, my first book came out, which was How to Survive Life and Death. And it was kind of a surprise that it happened. I'd never never known very much about near-death experience or anything. I think I saw In Search of with Leonard Nimoy or something Mm -hmm. once a long time ago with the light at the end of the tunnel. Mm -hmm. And And then once that first book got published, then I started being contacted and and I had the opportunity to meet a lot of other experiencers Mm -hmm. and hear their stories. And uh, what uh, struck me was the same thing that strikes me about my three stories is that there's a lot of things in common. There are certain motifs that are in common with near-death experience. But there's a lot of stuff that's very different and very custom-made. There's a whole range of experience that's just is larger than your imagination, pretty much. But some of the things that are always in common in the positive near-death experience stories, which each of mine really kind of is pretty, pretty much, is that there's always pure love, this kind of sense of, of transcendent unity, of being enfolded in love, kind of boundaryless. Um, there's radiant illumination of some kind, a brilliant light or light beings or clouds. There's something I had all that stuff happen. There's usually some kind of karmic uh, instruction where you're here to learn something, sort of thing. That happened for me uh, too. Um, there's this kind of uh, uh, eternal renewal. That takes place where maybe you're given an option to uh, to come back and start something over or make something happen that kind of thing and so the uh, that um, that feeling of being uh, enfolded in kind of a, a matrix of loving intelligence without personal boundaries any longer I experienced in all three of, of my my near-death experiences, and almost all near-death experiencers report that, you know. And that's something that's available to us here, too. And I would, um, I'd assert to your listeners that everybody has even had a piece, everybody has had a little piece of heaven Hmm. in their lives, and so can relate to uh, to these kinds of feelings that are just much more pronounced uh, when you're, uh, you know, experiencing them. Extra dimensionally, so to speak. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Can you elaborate on that? Like how we experienced it ourselves here—that we all have—just maybe like being in love or being extremely happy,
2: or I'm sure, yeah, a moment in nature, uh, for example. Um, the 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 uh, the membrane to the divine is much thinner in nature, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you can open up. You can forget about who you're supposed to be and what you're supposed to be, and just experience a kind of a transcendent unity when you're in nature, pretty right. easily. Yeah. Um, certainly, that's one of the way. Or when you're sharing uh, with a, a pet, for example, with an animal, they are channels to divine consciousness, and mm. so you can have that kind of experience of transcendent unity where everything is suddenly uh, better. You know, mm-hmm. everything is is yeah. easier and stuff. And this similar thing when you're with your kids, for example, and, you know, the, the sort of illumination that comes out of a baby, a happy baby's face, you know, mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But these are moments of, of, uh, of heaven, so to speak of the state of being that I experienced. And mm-hmm. that I think many near death experiencers have,
0: I guess, just in that near death experience, the moments are never ending until you leave. Would that be correct uh, to say?
2: Right, yeah, Um, and obviously they do end uh, because people don't uh, report on near-death experience unless they come back. You know, like like me. Right. You know, I'm I'm here. It was near death. Mm -hmm. Right. So, um, but those those kinds of experiences are available here, and that's really that's the second book, um, how to get to heaven without really dying. That's what it's really about is I really try to break down experiences in this life and pathways to that state of being Mm -hmm. that I know to be heaven and and that I, by identifying with other near-death experiencers, have have been able to recognize as being heaven. For some people, you know, it looks like heaven, Mm -hmm. just like angels and clouds and God sitting on a throne and stuff. Uh, for me, it was just a sensation of being. Mm. There was uh, something I've only had little pieces of in this mm. life, but there are means that we can get there, and and that's really what my my second book is about: is to help you experience that mm.
1: kind
0: of thing. So, would you say that on none of your NDEs, nothing fantastical happened? You didn't see colors that you weren't able to be seeing here, or. You know,
2: um, meet,
1: well, go,
0: going out into the cosmos, or one with the
2: universe, or um, right? They're they're actually uh, mine are fairly humble compared mm-hmm. to some people's. I was uh, speaking at a thing, and, and Robert Thurman, the great Uma Thurman's dad, the great mm-hmm. Buddhist teacher, was there, and he was talking about uh, Buddhist afterlife states. And I said, you know, what does it mean that I, I've I've had these three experiences, but none of them were incredibly grand. You know, I didn't have these like. Flocks of angels and stuff like that and he goes uh he goes you mustn't have near-death envy okay uh yeah and i don't really um because my experiences were they were fantastic they were mm-hmm. plenty fantastical mm-hmm. you know um I, I, let me tell you about the first one and you can see what i mean it's kind of a uh it's kind of a typical motif, an mm-hmm. out-of-body experience where uh, I was driving on a uh, an unfamiliar road at, at twilight. And this will tell you how long ago it was. I had a, um, a, a mess-up with my cassette player in my mm-hmm. car. Yeah. And it ate my tape, you know. It made that noise, and my tape was eaten, and I punched the thing to eject it. And it was all tangled in there, and I looked over at it for a second. And then apparently I glanced off a strangely parked car or I swerved a little bit, glanced off a car. I was going about 35 or 40 then I went right into a light pole. Wow. And I broke the steering wheel uh, with my face, which which explains this and went through the, uh, the windshield broke out the windshield with my head. And in the uh, very next instant, there was just like a moment of blackness. And then in the very next instant, I was at the top of the light pole looking down at the scene, the car bashed up with the steam rolling out and there's this like fluid pouring onto the ground and stuff and an arm hanging out of the, the driver's side window. And I didn't know this, uh, I didn't know this neighborhood well, but I could look over hedges and stuff down into people's yards and see lights flipping on, on porches and stuff like that. And, people running out to see what had happened. And there was a moth flying around, you know, mm-hmm. so I have these kind of specific memories about mm-hmm. moth flying around the light. And I watched people come out and i sort of was able to, um, to levitate downwards. Although I was not in human form. I didn't have hands and stuff. I didn't really know what form I was in, but I was experiencing this Absolute sense of boundaryless, boundarylessness, and transcendent unity with this kind of, you know, loving intelligence that just surrounded and enfolded me, and it was it was wonderful. Mm -hmm. But I was looking at, you know, material reality and people coming out, and I tried to tell people that I was all right, uh, but they couldn't hear me, and uh, and then I, I the whole time I had this sense. somebody behind me and uh, this sense of being shepherded or guided uh, kind of got stronger and stronger until it was as though I was hearing a voice telling me that it was time to go. And when they were loading my body into the ambulance and I'm watching it from above, you know, formless, uh, I'm shepherded off into what I remember as being, as being a, a like a cloud bank kind of, and I'll tell you, I try to um, I try to reproduce these memories as close as I possibly can to the day that it happened, because I've heard a lot of, and I know that there's a urge to to kind of expand on, and the experience has expanded, the experiences have expanded in me, but you know, human memory is not that reliable and. Lots of times we kind of self-enhance and Mm -hmm. inflate things. So I try to keep these like as directly like they were when they happen. Mm -hmm. So I don't remember flying around or anything, but apparently I was. I went through kind of a cloud bank is the last thing I remember. And then I was at this place that was very pastoral, like a beautiful park kind of Mm -hmm. with a slope and trees. And it was almost like I was at an outdoor cafe of sorts or something, but with another personage, sort of like a cross from a table, but I can't promise you there was a table there, you know. And I can't describe the, the personage uh, at all, although, you know, my mind sense has wanted to describe it in more detail. I'm not certain of what that means exactly. And we talked about important things. It was like an interview, kind of. Uh, where some important stuff got hashed out. I don't remember the details of it.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And I came to uh, about tw- almost 24 hours later, about 22 hours later or something, in uh, the second hospital they'd taken me to that had um, a plastic surgery specialists there. And uh, they released me because I didn't have health insurance at the time. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so they just took me down to... They took me down to the loading dock and a yellow cab pulled up. Wow. I got my head all bandaged. You know, after like a day and a half or so. And uh, when I got back home then, you know, I discovered that I really couldn't talk about it with people a great deal mm-hmm. because they were not, uh, they just looked at me funnier than usual. Mm-hmm. Right? You know, it's like, oh, you're yeah, right. Um, but I did go back to that neighborhood mm-hmm. and I l- looked around on foot and the stuff that I had seen from the top of the telephone pole was what I had seen. Oh. So I had that confirmation for myself. Oh, that's cool. That I had been out of my body and had an out of body experience. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's, it's a very special thing. It's hard to get the genie back in the bottle after, after that.
0: Yeah. You Did you have any after effects after that or any of them? that you had to learn how to manage.
2: Uh, yeah, I did. Yeah, life was, mm. life was an after, my life was an after effect of it in many ways. I, um, I didn't really, like I said, I didn't really know very much about near-death experience. Mm. I wasn't drawn to them. I didn't like look up to see if there was a community of people or anything like that. And so I, I possibly, what I did was just kind of suppress it. And this is something else that you'll hear in common with near-death experience. Mm. lots of times is this inability to really communicate what happened and have to kind of uh, deal with it yourself internally. Um, not long after that, I asked my wife at the time if she wanted to quit everything. We were, we were both designers. I was an illustrator and an art director at a big newspaper and stuff. And, uh, I asked her if she wanted to quit everything and go around the world for however long we could manage it. And we did. Oh, we traveled good. for uh, for about a year. And here's the funny thing is that I was not a spiritual person then. Mm-hmm. But almost everywhere we went could be considered kind of a, a spiritual landmark mm-hmm. or a, a place where, where one might take a special spiritual trip too, if that's what they were into. We went to a lot of ruins and uh, cathedrals and and, uh, looked for uh, Tiki in the South Pacific and, you know, explored the Mayan underworld before it was, there were any tourists there, you know, back in the eighties kind of thing. Um, So all this stuff was of a deeply spiritual nature and in retrospect, I know that it was part of this kind of growth or this. you know I like to describe it as as there being a uh, a spiritual and invisible spiritual machinery at work just beneath the surface of this world. Mm. It's always there, right, and that every once in a while it's like lifting the door on a glass bottom boat you, you You experience it for a minute, you know. Synchronicities are like that, or mm. these little pieces of heaven that I'm describing that you experience, mm-hmm. where you experience utter transcendent unity. <clears throat> Those are little doors through to this thing that's beneath us, this aquifer of spiritual consciousness and divine consciousness that's bubbling up and flowing through and creating, expressing itself through all the forms around us. Mm-hmm. So that's my first one, pretty fantastic, yeah. but also kind of pedestrian when it comes to near-death experience.
0: Have you considered you know, ever getting hypnotherapy to pick up the things that you can't completely remember?
2: I have. I have considered that. And, I, of course, I've been around like Brian Weiss and people like that, you know, and mm-hmm. my, my speaking and traveling around this, <coughs> around this stuff. But I've never done it, oh, and yeah. I'm not sure exactly why I haven't gone out of my way to do that i've never felt a, a deep need to uh to do that i think that the um i believe in in a reincarnation that we're alive before we're born and we're, we're alive after we die mm-hmm. and that it's kind of a seamless flow where we are accumulating this kind of karmic information you know and then we pass through these different realms where we work out aspects of that mm-hmm. karma so mm-hmm. to speak and um and that the uh, the reality that we experience at any given moment, in any given instant, is a result of that. You know, mm-hmm. what what we're available for, what we're engaged in, the degree to which we're present. Um, in fact, I say that my first near-death experience gave me the gift of perspective, of spiritual perspective. Mm-hmm. My second one gave me the gift of presence. Um, which I can just launch into if you want to sure. do that one, unless you sure. want to yeah, talk not? more about out-of-body experiences. Yeah. Um, I had uh, I'd taken this trip with my wife and stuff and settled in San Francisco. And not long after settling, I got a call that my aunt, who had been really important to me when I was a kid, that she was dying, that she was on life support across the bay in Oakland. And I got in my car and drove over there and was present when she died. Hmm. And I had, a, I had an experience that I think was different from my cousin and his family that were also there in the room, um, of her uh, being present with us. And uh, I um, kind of fell out of my marriage. In fact, a lot of things kind of went off track after that. And I ended up um, leaving my wife, and I moved to New York City. I'd always wanted to live in New York City, and I began leading the life of, of a uh, like a downtown artist. Mm-hmm. You know, I was I was pretty um, pretty nocturnal and self destructive, mm-hmm. and all of that kind of fabulous stuff. Sure. Right, yeah. and um, that led to a, a, an experience where I, you call it an overdose or or just. You know, burning a Roman candle at both ends kind of thing where uh, I had a um, I had a kind of succession or a cascading uh, breakdown and passed out on the floor of my apartment in, in midtown Manhattan. And my girlfriend at the time was there and immediately became, you know, upset. And as she was expressing how upset she was, you know, she's down like trying to, I was going, I had gone numb from the neck down and couldn't move at all and laying on the ground and the whole room filled in, in this brilliant white cloud. Um, Like when you see the sun filling a white cloud, just radiant brilliance, illumination. And she completely faded out. All the details of where I was in this reality were gone. And I was in this cloud. And again, I felt like I was not alone. I felt like I was accompanied. Mm -hmm. And this entity, uh, you might call it, directed me to kind of like look a certain way into this cloud. And there opened up in the midst of this cloud a kind of a screen. Um, that was a little bit more like a box of time, where these episodes from my life began to play, and they weren't the greatest hits.
1: There you know, wasn't the <laughs> highlight
2: reel. These were these were things that um, that generally I had missed. Times when I was injuring somebody and I had just kind of steamrolled it in my mind, or when uh, opportunities arose for real growth, and I had not been present. Right. And there were maybe five or six of these, some of which I've come to remember uh, since then. At the time, I didn't really remember them very clearly, but um, you know, those are memories, again, I'm not sure I can trust them because mm-hmm. they've been so long, and this is where maybe the hypnosis might be able to really help me out kind of thing, but, but um, they were Uh, intensely meaningful. You know, they were really pivotal moments, as I remember. And uh, then I started to hear my girlfriend screaming and crying kind of again. And it kind of broke through. And I was still alive. And the clouds started to dissipate a little bit, to kind of thin up. And some of the definition of reality of the room i was in the girl crying and stuff started to enter back into it and i kind of start to feel a flow again and it faded out completely and i was back in this room
1: Mm.
2: and i was on my back for another 45 minutes or so probably Um, and then that one changed things a lot i broke up with her i moved from new york to arizona I got a place in New York and I started going back and forth between the Arizona desert and New York city, you know, but, what that one taught me then is I call the gift of presence, which is the fact that um, we are always only experiencing life in this moment. Right. Yeah. This moment itself does not seem all that different to me right now than it ever has except for that, unfortunately, I'm much older and, you know, I have less hair and all. Mm-hmm. I know more stuff. I have a lot more experience. But nonetheless, if I'm not present in this moment, I'm not able to be a witness for those things that create my karma, for mm-hmm. those opportunities that I'm presented with for growth, mm-hmm. for those chances to, uh, to make a difference in somebody's life, to express love, to uh, remove the obstacles to love. That kind of thing, the really important stuff. It mm-hmm. that, that gives us a different definition of success, and uh, um, that gift, then in tandem with uh, the gift of perspective, the gift of presence, um, changed my life in a different way. Where now I'm now I'm as engaged in the moment at all times as I possibly can be. Mm-hmm. And recognize that right now is really the only time I can reach into that box of time and sort of manipulate things, Mm -hmm. you know, work with it. Mm
0: -hmm. I think that's amazing the way that you put that, because I never really thought about that until you just said that. The Mm -hmm. way you experience now is the way you've always experienced now.
2: That's evidence of what the out-of-body experience teaches me, too, mm -hmm. is is that we are spiritual? We are diaphanous, effervescent mm-hmm. light energy beings, spiritual beings, mm-hmm. riding around in this unfortunate vehicle, you know, mm-hmm. and, uh, and 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 uh, we live in this kind of eternal moment.
0: How does one um, in the present moment determine that if opportunities are coming by? Because something you know seemed like a good opportunity, but you never really know, right? Unless you take a
2: chance. I think that paying attention in the moment opens you up to to more potential for for that kind of growth and expansion. Um, you'll notice that if you're really caught up in your life in who you're supposed to be, where you're supposed to be, what you're supposed to be, you're comparing and. Uh, judging and and doing all that kind of you're kind of involved in the world of ego uh you overlook a lot and you miss a lot and when you're just kind of um being your authentic self so to speak when those things aren't weighing too heavily on you uh you'll be talking about somebody and you'll look at your phone and they will have just texted you Mm -hmm. and you'll be You'll be talking about koala bears and a truck will go by with a koala bear on it. You know, yeah. And these are those moments where it opens up and you can see into it and then it closes back up again.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh,
2: but if you um, practice and meditation is really great for this, for expanding you into the transcendent, so to speak, mm-hmm. or the extra dimensional. Uh, if you practice being open and being and having mindfulness is what the Buddhists call it awareness in the moment, then you'll start to see these things all the time. Hmm. They start happening all the time. And then when life opens a door for you, it's just very obvious. Hmm. Most of the time uh, uh, we're stuck in this place where it's like, oh, should I do it or shouldn't I, I don't, you know, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Well, if you stop and take a couple deep breaths and ask yourself internally, is this the right thing for me? And just, like, take a moment to listen. There's a very good chance that you will get the answer, you know. It's like, no, there's something wrong with this. Take a pass on this. Or, yes, step forward. Say yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you're living with certain principles that, that, that I call the, the – uh, Characteristics of heaven
1: mm-hmm.
2: kindness, honesty, humility, forgiveness, compassion, service. When you've got all that stuff in your heart and you're living that way, then you can see that a lot of things are things that you should say yes to. Mm-hmm. And the things that you shouldn't say yes to are pretty obvious
1: mm-hmm.
2: because they don't have anything to do with kindness, honesty, humility, forgiveness, compassion, or service. You know? Uh, so, the experiences uh, sort of set down this kind of path or course uh, for me, um, and the, the three the, the three ch- uh, sections of my book are, are perspective, presence, and purpose. That is the, what I learned from the third third one. My third and least favorite near death experience. It's not so bad though. I I do uh, the first book is about dying more. Mm. about people who have issues with dying because um I can tell you that in each of the three experiences a uh, death was quite a pleasant thing mm. in most ways now I didn't suffer from an extended disease or something right where i you know, slowly got worse and painful and stuff like that and I did uh, my third one was very painful and took me a long time to recover from which i'll I'll tell you in a minute but it's um it's just uh, um, available to to uh, all of us in the way that um, things are really difficult and they change things things are destroyed kind of in our life we, you know you have it you have certain things that you think of yourself you die in many ways and uh, you die from childhood and years, and then from your young adulthood, uh, you lose relationships. Other people die in your life. Uh, you lose a job. You lose a place to live. Um, those are the deaths that are really changing. The yeah. actual death, the physical death, was not um, was not that. It was like stepping into another room. Mm-hmm. You know, it was just like, Oop, I'm here now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. It's not a bad thing. Death is not a bad thing, only because we're humans. You know, don't ask me to prove it right now, mm-hmm. right? Because we're humans. We, don't, uh, we, we instinctively don't want to have to go there. Uh, so the third one, I was, um, I was traveling between Arizona and New York, and uh, it was a Super Bowl Sunday. I had just come from New York to a small town, a college town in Arizona, and I, I looked like a New Yorker. So I was a little bit out of place, I think. And um, my uh, fiancé at the time was at home baking, and I had gone to watch the Super Bowl with some friends. And there was a a lot of people around this university town for Super Bowl Sunday. And after the game, I went out and I got it. This will tell you how long ago it was, too. This was uh, 88 or so, Um, around there. Um, I got on the – no, I'm sorry. It was – and then the third one was in the 90s. Um I got on a, a payphone to call the, uh, my fiance and this big skinhead kid came up and started to hassle me. Mm. And he was sort of pushing me and holl- and he was drunk, he was real drunk. And I kind of talked him out of it. He reached in and hung up the phone on me. And I kind of talked him out of it and he went away. And then I got back on the phone uh, to my fiance and this kid comes back and he's really aggressive pushing me and hollering at me and calling me names and stuff. Yeah. What he thought I was or whatever. And, um, I dropped the phone and I made a great mistake that I will never repeat. I planted my back foot and I punched the guy right on the chin and knocked him backwards, just out flat and people around me applauded and stuff. It's like, boy, he really deserved it and good for you. And I immediately didn't feel great about it, but I made my escape, you know. I left, I went, I had ridden a bike, I got on my bike and I started riding back home. And I didn't realize that there was a van full of these guys who had witnessed me punch their friend. And they drove up alongside of me and hit me in the back of the head with like a crowbar or a tire iron or something. And knocked me off my bike head first into the curb, and boom. I was suddenly in a- another world again. Uh, this one wasn't as light and sort of heavenly. It wasn't uh, illuminated. There was no radiant uh, illumination in it. Um, it was very, and maybe appropriately, very kind of womb-like. A sort of small and subterranean feeling and there was a group of entities around me that again were all enfolding me in this seamless love you know this this is kind of warmth and transcendent unity all these feelings that i'd had before i was a little bit more of my form I, as i think i wasn't as far departed into another dimension or something because I kept kind of hearing violence. I had a sense of violence like in the next room sort of thing, or right out there it was happening. And I was um, insisting on staying and they were beginning to insist that I leave, that I hadn't done what I was supposed to do sort of thing that I Mm -hmm. had a mission to fulfill kind of. And Mm -hmm. they, Started to sort of gather me up and I was fighting against it. I did not, you know, I'd had it with here. I didn't want to be here anymore. But they picked me up, as I recall it. All these hands were on me and pushed me through a kind of a membrane. And I popped out. I opened my eyes and I was on my back on the street in this town with an emergency medical worker over me. And the guy said, He's back. <laughs> and uh, I had to have reconstructive surgery on my shoulder, and I had broken ribs, and you know, my head was messed up and stuff. And it took me quite a while to mm-hmm. to get over that. But once I was over that um, physically, more or less, I had an experience where the woman that I had married then left me, uh, in part because I was pretty miserable after all of that took place. And, and kind of everything that I thought that I was supposed to be um, fell apart. And I, I went through this, what you might call a dark night of the soul. And that's what I consider to be the actual death that made the big change in me. Because I, everything that I thought I was, everything that I thought mattered, didn't. Suddenly, it was all gone, evaporated. And it was just me, I was like an egg without a shell, you know, and I experienced um, absolute humility in such a way that I became teachable that I, From that point on, I could grow spiritually and that led me to this experience at nine eleven that I had. I was in New York City at nine eleven when it happened, and I had a powerful spiritual experience witnessing that whole thing on the day of 9-11. Hmm. And kind of at that point, I said, you know something, I've, I've got to answer this. I've had these three experiences in my life that inform me in a way that I've suppressed. I'm open to experiences of an extra-dimensional nature, and I don't know if anybody else is around me. And I don't feel like there's anybody I can talk to about it. And I got a. Um, I found a little house on the Upper Delaware River, about two and a half hours out of New York City, and I bought this little house. And I sat on a rock by the river, mm-hmm. and developed a, a a meditation practice, and became really interested in spiritual texts and and uh, oh, just philosophy and psychology. And, quantum physics and all this stuff I'd never been interested in before. And then I was kind of um, urged to write about it. And I had this, uh, I had a blog that I put my animation design and illustrations on and I started posting spiritual essays that I was writing spontaneously after I sat on this rock
1: hmm.
2: and I started getting contacted by uh, Gaia.com and wow. mindful word.org and asking me to write for them or contributing. And um, and not long after that, I got the urge to write a book. I had like a calling to write a book about the death experience, which was how to survive life and death. And uh, I Googled spiritual publishers after I had a, a little manuscript after just a couple of weeks and uh, sent it, sent them, my manuscript online and the editor called me and asked me out to lunch and they published my book and stuff. Oh. It was, uh, you know, crazy. Yeah. It's amazing. Uh, miraculous. Mm-hmm. Anyways. Yeah. And, uh, and so I, I, I recognized from that third near death experience that each of us informing this package of karma, so to speak, that we carry from this life to another to whatever life we're in, we're always here. I was always here now, whether I was dead or as I am now, whatever world I was occupying, I don't know if these were all the same worlds. You know, I'm not sure where I was when I was there. But, um, you know, we have this, uh, this opportunity to experience a life uh, beyond this one, in this one, everything that the, pure love, radiant illumination, transcendent unity, karma construction, eternal renewal, they're all here now. And they're always all here now. And so I have this opportunity to create this karma that then I believe is essentially projected out into this field of infinite potential, which then reflects back to us what we are what we should be or could be and that that's the nature of the near-death experience i think um so i'm not here to tell you that heaven is an address you know or that it looks a certain way i'm here to tell you that the potential for it is with us all the time no matter what life we're in and that The way we are living is what is determining the design of this reality in whatever reality we're occupying. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Right. And we have a purpose. It may not be to be a movie star, to be something fabulous. It may be just to show up for your mom or to be a great partner or a great dad. It may be something as simple as that, which is not simple at all, as we know. Yes, it's profound. Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, um, each of us has a pretty fabulous calling, really, and that is to fulfill and create this uh, this karmic, you know, package of information that we are, and to have it overlap and join in, and become um, boundaryless, to remove the obstacles to love, mm-hmm. to express love coming through us. To witness it in all the forms of the world, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I had to become a vegetarian, you know, that kind mm-hmm. of stuff mm-hmm. well, happened okay. to me yeah. uh, afterwards.
1: So.
0: I read a quote the other day, and I'll tell you what it's like, and then I'll give you a question, because it's kind of based on the quote. So this quote I read, read the other day was something like, if you're not now in the present, then you're either living in your imagination— which is the future, or you're living in your memories with the past. So on that thought, are you living in the present all the time or are, do you struggle like the rest of us in living in our memories and our imaginations?
2: Oh, uh, no. The, um, I call this vast field of, of conscious potential uh, divine consciousness. It expresses itself through everything, including through me. I'm in a human form that's a result of of my uh, genes, my experiences, etc. And so I am channeling divine consciousness through this form. So I am stuck with uh, the um, constraints of the human form like all of us are you know, I, am subject to, to everything that being human is. I may have a slightly different point of view on it. Uh, because like I said, it's hard to get the genie back in the bottle when you've been knocked out of your body and you witness the material world as a different realm that you're no longer a part of. That's right. pretty unusual. Or this, these experiences of pre- presence or purpose, uh, that I had. Um, but I am probably, uh, maybe more conscious of the fact that I'm voyaging into the past, that I'm like exploring my past. When there are things that I recognize as being problems that are habitual or repetitive in in my world here, I recognize that it probably has something to do with something that happened to me in the past. And so I, I, I like to think of things as metaphors, kind of, and I think of myself as being sort of a pearl diver, you know, like to plunge in and to swim down into the murky stuff where where things arise that are real familiar, memories arise that are real familiar, and kind of looking in between them and trying to sit with them and be with them. Again, meditation is great for these kinds of internal explorations, you know. Mm. Um, and likewise, I see the future as something that I can project into and I can precondition, you know, if, if um, you know, I like to say to people that heaven is this is a state of being. And if you think about what you want heaven, or how you imagine heaven to be, it's a place where people are kind, where they're honest, where they're humble, where they're forgiving, where they're compassionate and where they're of service, you know any angel would drop his harp in a minute to help you out with whatever you need. No problem. Right. Mm -hmm. And so if you are projecting those things into your life, you're preconditioning the world in such a way that it's more amenable to your projections. You know, it's reflecting back to you what you are projecting out into it when you're being really kind. And I love to give this as, as a challenge to people. Uh, take the ch- the kindness challenge. Mm-hmm. Be as unconditionally kind to people as you possibly can be for a day or two and watch what happens. You'll discover that you're part of this fabric of kindness that was always alive right there. You'll walk into places and have friends suddenly, mm-hmm. like out of nowhere, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And so this reality is fungible. This reality is malleable and you you can treat the future that way. This is why goals work for a lot of people. You know, um, they can work in different directions. You can become self-involved and never be happy with any kind of success,
1: mm-hmm.
2: or you can make a goal to to uh, to grow personally and and uh, to expand yourself into whatever potential. It doesn't even matter what it is that happens to you. It's all amazing. Kind of So I I live between those polarities that way, but recognize that it is only within this personal moment that I'm able to deal with either. That I'm able to submerge myself in the past and learn from it, or create the projection for the future, and then hope that it works. The Bhagavad Gita, it's like... uh, um, you know, the story of this archer who goes to fight his own family kind of thing and his, his chariot driver is Krishna, his god. He says, Yeah, I don't you know, I don't want to kill my own family. I don't want to have to go do this or fight this war and stuff. He goes, Don't worry, you don't kill your family. I do. Hmm. Your job is to be an archer. That's what you do. Oh, well,
0: that's interesting.
2: And so you you know, that's your thing. Whatever I'm good at, whatever people want me to do. For them. Whatever I feel like I need to do for people, that's my purpose. And and when I project myself into that future that way, that's all I have to do. I can't control how it's going to come back, how it's going to be created. That's, you know, the universe is doing that. Uh, so I do my part and I let God do the rest, so to speak. Yeah
0: yeah, that's great. I'm going to transition to something here um, a little bit different, but it's still along the same lines. I think in one of your books, you may have spoke about that animals are more consciously intelligent than humans usually give them credit for. So what roles do you think animals play in our lives?
2: Well, uh, like I mentioned before, you know they're a channel to divine consciousness. Mm-hmm. And they're a more generally a more direct channel to divine consciousness, because they weren't locked out of the garden. Mm-hmm. You know, they didn't uh, uh, metaphorically eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, right and wrong. I know best. Mm-hmm. I'm right about this. Yeah. I'm better than everything else. Yeah. Right? That'll get you locked out of the garden mm-hmm. of Eden, so to speak. The animals don't have that. They don't have those kinds of judgments or comparisons. That kind of ego aspect that humans do, unfortunately, is the cause of almost all of our problems. Mm -hmm. And so, when you sit with a cat in your lap or a puppy in your lap or something like that, you immediately are channeling divine consciousness, and everybody knows it. It's just a beautiful thing, you know. And when you watch the magnificence of of, uh, an intelligence of a whale or an elephant. And the more we learn about them and how deeply conscious they are, then you realize that it's, we have a, as human beings, we have a misperception problem. We are subject to what our perception allows us only. I was saying to my wife the other day, I'm glad I, I'm glad I can't smell as well as a dog. Because this would be an awful place to be in if I could, Mm -hmm. you know, if my smeller was 9,000 times better than it is right Mm -hmm. now. I And so when we recognize that, that, uh, animals have these profound intelligences that are formed by their perception of the world, they live in a different world than we do. It's the same Mm -hmm. world, but it's a completely different world than what we live in, um, then you recognize that they they are uh, karmic individuals too. Hmm. And when you uh, go to the shelter to find a cat for yourself and a cat walks over to you and looks you in the eye and you realize this is the cat that you have to take home, that is your karmic partner who is there for you to join in this effort. And uh, once you th- uh, think about animals that way, then uh, your respect and admiration and sometimes envy can uh, grow f- uh, towards them. You know, um, the life of a dog who is well taken care of is a pretty beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I would love for that to yeah. happen. You know, that kind of thing. Um, and so uh, likewise, it's, it's not, um, it's not possible for me to take part in, you know, the sort of corporate massacre that goes on in our culture. If I were an Inuit uh, in the North Pole and I had no, uh, no form of protein available to me aside from fish and seals, um, then I would probably do what they do, which is enter into a, a ritual coexistence with animals where I am sharing divine consciousness with them They're supplying something that I need. I'm supplying something that they need. I'm killing the weakest ones that can't get away, you know, that kind of stuff. Mm. And um, I'm dressing up as a walrus and doing a ritual dance to release the walrus spirits and invite the walrus spirits in. I'm part of a cycle of being with them. Mm. Then I would consider eating animals that way. Right. But I don't need to do that. I don't have to do that. I love beans. Right. <laughs> <You know>? right. <laughs> and so, uh, uh, and, and so um, when we allow that to take place for us with animals and allow that expansion, that's the kind of expansion into heaven, so to speak, that opens you up into the state of being that I'm talking about that's available for us. Most people experience it with their pets all the time. Mm -hmm. And if you're just more conscious about it, if you're more present for it, uh, it opens it up in a different way to you, and it it becomes um, a new definition of success, a new kind of reality Mm. that's more heavenly in Mm -hmm. its nature.
0: Mm. I noticed on your first and second NDE, you had a being here. Do you believe that that was the same being both times— And if so, do you think if it is the same being, this entity is with you like a guardian angel or just some entity assigned to you to look after you while you're here?
2: Yeah, the the explicit part of spirituality is a little frightening at times because, you know, you are always being watched. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You know, I hope you're not watching right now, (laughs) but uh, um yeah I do think that uh that this was the same entity, and in fact in a in a completely different kind of um, experience um when i I first met uh, uh my wife uh, that i've been married to for twelve thirteen years now um, who by the way is an animal communicator hmm. so she's constantly coming up with evidence of the unseen yeah. you know it's amazing um <clears throat> Um what was i talking about the
0: uh, entities on your shoulder
2: my... Yeah about um my guardian angel thank right. you uh she's a, a reiki master and i had never experienced anything like reiki before which is this japanese kind of energy massage sort of thing that's uh, related uh, to uh, your chakras and the like and uh, I kind of went unconscious as soon as she started to give me a, a Reiki session and suddenly found myself. I had kind of like an astral travel sort of thing, mm. I guess, right? I was flying like an airplane, but my body, you know, my arms out like this, over a cloud, over above the clouds, like you would do an airplane sometimes. And there's this opening happened and it was green down in there. And I flew down and I ended up in this sort of uh, beautiful, kind of house, country house, with a meadow around it and woods, and I walked up onto the porch and into the house, and my Aunt Ruth, whose bedside I had been by when I died, when she died, um, was there, and she introduced me to this rather elegant woman as being Anne who was there for me. And so I had this experience where I met my guardian angel, I believe, um, in this kind of astral, spontaneous astral travel. And then I, you know, then I woke up, and and you know, my wife said, "Hey, you fell asleep for a while." That kind of thing. And so, whether it was a dream or I was astrally traveling, to me, that is who is with me, and when I go into meditations or when I go into Personal prayers, I'll often talk uh, to her and to my Aunt Ruth, who's with me all the time, too, Hmm. and uh, to Yeshua and Buddha and Krishna and Allah and, uh, you know, Dr. Wayne Dyer and Joseph Campbell. I'll include all kinds of favorites.
0: (laughs) That's interesting, you added Joseph Campbell.
2: Oh yeah! Oh, Joseph Campbell said something. Um, you know, for years and years, when I was not spiritual, mm-hmm. one thing I would make sure I never missed when it was on was when PBS replayed the Bill Moyers Joseph Campbell interviews, yeah. "The Power of Myth." Yeah, it was really life changing for me. This show, and I remember Joseph Campbell saying, uh, uh, "We're here to answer the metaphysical." impulse to transcend the delusion of separateness
1: Hmm.
2: Wow! (laughs) and he had this look on his face like you know and i didn't know what that meant until you know after my inner journeys up on the river but now that's one of my very favorite kind of go-to sayings we're here to answer the impulse the metaphysical impulse to transcend the delusion of separateness We are all one, we're all the same, Mm
1: -hmm.
2: being, experiencing many of the same things. Mm -hmm. Expressing this divine consciousness through this form that I'm in, that form that you're in, everybody out there, their form. And all these things around us are divine consciousness pouring through those forms in this realm. This is what it looks like, all of it. Since we're all the same thing, we agree on the structure of everything. But there is still a tremendous range in experience, you know, mm-hmm. when you die and go to heaven or wherever you go. And this, I think, explains people's uh, very different, very different um, experiences. It would be like parachuting into the onto this planet. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could land in Gross Point, Michigan and be the child of a fabulously wealthy family. And have one kind of experience, or you could, uh, you know, wake up in a war-torn country in poverty and have that kind of experience too. Dependent on on what your karmic makeup is, mm-hmm. essentially. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I have a uh, I have a guardian angel. That's the one answer to that question. Oh, that's okay. And uh, I experience I experience her uh, regularly, personally.
0: Do you have any other projects that you're working on right now? I mean, you have the two books. Are you working on a third book, or there's, is there anything else that you're working on that you'd like people to know about?
2: Yeah, I've, I've, got, um, I've got another book that's outlined that, uh, that's called The Zen of Near Death. Hmm. Um, but I also have a memoir project uh, that I've been working on. I've had an unusual life. I've had a lot of strange and interesting things happen to me, not just the near-death stuff,
1: mm-hmm.
2: um, but I think was opened up to some of these kinds of experiences uh, because of, of the near-death stuff. I don't consider myself so much a near-death experiencer, and I don't. I'm, I'm not sure that I want to write strictly for that field or just speak at near-death experience things anymore but i'll tell you the the main project that i've had lately uh, because my wife and i moved from new york city lived there for like 35 years or so with brief the brief time that i was in arizona and uh, we moved to california i'm from california originally so i'm closer to my mom who lives in san diego and that's one of my projects she recently had uh, it's very serious surgery and so I can jump in my car in a couple hours. I can go spend a few days with her and help her out. Um, This is uh, living amends. This is my karmic fulfillment, you know, bringing it back around. We bring it back around in a circle. Uh, My dad, who lives halfway around the world, who's a a very eccentric guy, showed up here on my doorstep in Palm Springs, California, uh, sick And even though I hadn't seen him for more than four or five days in 35 years, I took care of him for two months and Mm. sat knee to knee with him and had these experiences of catching up kind of thing. And uh, now it's a matter, too, of supporting my wife and of helping people with the circumstances that we're in Mm -hmm. kind of the way. People contact me for help with things, and I'm always happy and available through my own, mostly through my blog site, which is robertkopacki.blogspot.com. Mm-hmm. You can buy my books directly from me there, or you can also buy them on Amazon and stuff like that. But I can sign them for you; it costs about the same thing. You know that. So I, 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 my project now is really um, participating in life. Mm-hmm in the ways that I've been describing to you all along. Mm. I don't have to be this or that. Um, There's a great expression that um, uh, a guru named Ramana Maharshi uh, used to say to paraphrase. him, The problem with uh, saying, I am this or that, is the this or that. The I am part is fine. And we all are. When you start saying I'm this or I'm that, you know, I'm smarter. I'm owed money. I need a job. I, you know, those are aspects of the material world. Then
1: mm-hmm. that
2: don't speak of that transcendent unity that we all share, and that I try to have direct my life now. So I don't feel the great need to do uh, this or that. Yeah. But instead, to kind of answer my life as it's presented to and to allow it to lead me. There's a, there's a Native American expression I love, which is, if you get tired of rowing upstream, turn around.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Because it's carrying you, and it will carry you in a reliably wonderful way if you're not fighting it or trying to control it.
0: Is there any other way, if people want to get in touch with you, besides your blog, website, for example, do you interact with the public on Facebook, or are you more of a
2: private person? Um, it's a combination, yeah. Uh, I feel like pe- people are drawn karmic karmically to me, so to speak. I work with uh, a number of people regularly, sort of mentor uh, people. Um, but my, uh, my email is on my uh, blog site, and it's also on my website. Too, which is okay, um, And so people can get in touch with me. I'm available, you know. Uh, and I've had times when I, I had a lot of people, I was helping a lot of people at a given time, and other times when I wasn't so much. Um, it's not coincidental that I didn't have a lot happening when I needed to take care of my mom, I don't think. You know, I think that you. If you have a certain presence in life that that these things sort of open up for you, you know, the the circumstances you're living in right now are just right for you in a way, right? It's a perfect place for you to be on hold until you can move to where you're going to move to, and that's kind of how uh, how it always is. You want to make the uh, make the uh, path home be home, right? Mm. You're not, I was going somewhere. Mm -hmm. You're here.
1: Yeah.
0: All right, Robert, before we wrap it up, a lot of people are going through hard times more than ever because of what's been going down this year. So can you give us any advice on how to take it easier in life, how to enjoy life more, how to be more successful in life? Yeah.
2: Well, I've been trying to do some of that, you know, just the the whole time here, but... Mm -hmm. It's also, I think, uh, this matter of death and dying, uh, where I was mentioning before that you, you die in different ways in your life. And, and right now we have just experienced kind of a mass death of our lifestyle, or of our expectations for things in a way. Mm. Now, it, it'll come back, you know, it'll restore itself and it'll come back to, to a kind of normality, but it'll never quite be the same again. Because as much as I hate to say it, the difficulty is instructive. This is not an easy life here. It doesn't end well for any of us in a way, you know. Um, And we go through all kinds of difficult things. And we just happen to be sharing this one so that there's a value to our sharing it together. Mm. We are all recognizing right now that... um, that there is a, a different definition of success than the one that we may have been buying into of, you know, up until this point. And we have to find it. If suddenly you don't have that job and you don't have that income, where are those things going to come from? And what is replacing that? Mm. What uh, ends up being really important in your life? you you got all kinds of people going, wow, I I don't know how it's happening, but I'm just barely paying all my bills, and I'm spending all this time with my family. Hmm. That kind of thing. And so uh, being present with this kind of open-heartedness and living in the moment and opening yourself to all this possibility, regardless of what the external circumstances seem to be, uh, will lead you in a way that that um, struggling and fighting it. Uh, the degree to which you want to control things is proportional to the degree that you'll suffer. Yeah. You know, uh, if I need to, things to be this way, there's a good chance they're not going to be that way. Mm. And right now, that's what we're all experiencing. They're not that way. So uh, you you're opened up. Um, You gain humility. You gain a level of humility that you wouldn't have had otherwise. And when we're humble, when we're truly down to our authentic self, we become teachable. And then we can expand. And we can experience a lot of these uh, wonders of this life in a different way than we ever had before. Maybe because we're not so busy. Maybe because we're all sharing this, you know, the serious dance with death kind of thing that's going on on a global scale. Uh, things are being reorganized here in, in a beautiful way if you're uh, engaged in them that way. Um, you are what you think is one of the sort of seminal axioms of all kinds of religions and stuff. If you want to cast your thoughts into doom and gloom, you'll live in doom. Uh, so enjoy the moment, live in the moment mm-hmm. and being, uh, here right now, it's, it's always uh, remarkable and fun in a lot of ways, even when it seems pedestrian mundane or something, it can open up to you in, in ways that you hadn't imagined it could before. And, and look at all the things, all the opportunities you're being presented mm-hmm. by. Um, the Sufis say that, the, the disaster is a great gift because when you look into the catastrophic, when you're facing it, you only need to turn around 180 degrees and there is bliss. Hmm. So it's always right there. Hmm. It just depends on how close you're standing to your fears. You know.
0: Robert, I really appreciate it today. I think you've given us a lot of teachable lessons and great lessons here. This was so much more than my regular podcast because we went way beyond just learning about your NDEs. I mean, we—I felt like we got valuable experience from you,
2: and I appreciate that. Well, I—I I didn't go through all this terrible stuff for nothing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm hoping that that I can pass pass some of this along mm-hmm. so that you don't have to do it the same way. You know, that's the deal, but. Uh, thank you very much Jeff it's been a great pleasure speaking with you I really
0: enjoyed it likewise I was about to say yeah you've died on the cross for us
2: oh <laughs> no but, uh, the one thing I'd like to say about that the cross is a symbol is a metaphoric symbol mm-hmm. life on earth transcendent unity that's what it stands for oh wow that's interesting there's an intersection right that point of intersection life on this earth transcendent unity you can you can be there you can be in that spot wow
0: well robert thank you very much i wish you massive success on your next book and i wish you a very great evening
2: thanks very much and happy holidays to everybody if this airs beforehand it's live right so happy holidays thank you be safe be safe
0: thank you you.
1: have a good evening you too